Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I would be lost without my smartphone. I use it for directions, to find things to do, and most importantly, where to eat. I rely on it as a digital music player to enhance my experience as I explore a new place. Oh, and sometimes I even use it to make calls and stuff. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, senior writer, Jonathan Strickland, right for HowStuffWorks.com. And today we're going to have part two, the exciting conclusion on our episodes about transmitter hunting. Our, uh, our friend, my coworker, Joe McCormick, joins us to talk about this interesting use of technology and how it's been turned into a sporting event, something that you can participate in if you have the desire. So let us rejoin the show. We need to move into more of a discussion about radio specifically, because even though radio is a subset of electromagnetic radiation, it covers an enormous range of frequencies and therefore wavelengths. And not all frequencies behave the same on Earth. True, yeah. Uh, so like, you've got different bands. You might have – you've seen terms like HF or VHF, UHF. Yeah. Th these are uh, specific sub-bands of frequencies on the electromagnetic spectrum, all what we would call radio yes. frequencies. But um, So, yeah, you've got like high-frequency – very high frequency. And a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is going to be in the VHF part yeah. of the spectrum. Yeah, that very high frequency. So, yeah, this radio spectrum is pretty broad, and it goes well beyond the types of radio that, that 
the typical person can listen into unless you happen to be one of those folks who, you know, maybe you operate a maritime radio to help with navigation, in which case you are using frequencies most of us don't touch. But uh, or maybe you are a doctor working with experimental medical imaging uh, equipment, in which case you're using uh, radio frequencies on the opposite end of the spectrum because maritime radio uses very low frequency uh, uh, radio waves, whereas medical imaging uses extremely high frequency radio waves. So the range goes from the bottom uh, is at like three hertz, which means you get three waves passing a given point in a second, uh, all the way up to tremendously high frequency, which is 3,000 <laughs> gigahertz or three trillion hertz, meaning three trillion waves pass a given point within a second. Uh, actually, I like extremely low frequency more because the uh, acronym is ELF. So elves, uh-huh. elves communicate kind of like ints, very long waveforms. It's um, the elves at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, that's where we've stuck them. So uh, again, you know, we talked about how all these waves are traveling at the speed of light. So it's really just the the number of waves that pass a given point in a second that tells you a frequency, not speed of transmission, because that's going to remain the same no matter what. So um, uh, a three hertz frequency wave will tell you that the wavelength for that particular wave has to be a 100,000 kilometers in length. That's a long radio wave, uh-huh. 100,000 kilometers. Meanwhile, on the opposite end of the spectrum, if you go all the way to that 3,000 gigahertz wave, you're talking about 100 micrometers in length. So teeny tiny. Micrometers are very tiny. A uh, huge difference, obviously, in the length of these waves. Um, so that's why you know the whole frequency wavelength relationship is important. So we use the different frequencies for very specific purposes. Uh, it's also important to point out that this is not universal. Uh, the, the there are usually some sort of governing body within a country that designates what frequencies can be used for what purposes. In the U.S., we have the FCC. Uh, so if you're looking at the terahertz side of things, that's that ultra, ultra high or terribly high frequency, as is somehow, sometimes referred to. Um, it's for medical imaging, that, that yeah. kind of stuff. Uh, also molecular dynamics measurements and other high-tech information. Uh, the uh, extremely low frequency would be like radio communication with submarines. Uh, you can't you can't use very high frequency when communicating with stuff that's underwater. The waves attenue or the the radio waves get attenuated by the ocean water, and that creates problems with communication. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's less of a problem with the, with extremely low frequency and very long wavelength radio transmissions. Now, what about the kind of radio we think of as standard radio, as in radio accessible to the average consumer, AM, FM, that kind of stuff? So AM would be in the medium frequency. Medium frequency ranges from 300 kilohertz to 3,000 kilohertz or 3 megahertz, if you prefer. Uh, AM radio specifically in the United States is in an even more narrow range than that, right? That's all of medium frequency. Uh, AM radio in the U.S. goes from 500 35 kilohertz to 1,700 kilohertz or 1.7 megahertz. Um, if you wanted to talk about shortwave radio, that's from 5.9 megahertz to 26.1 megahertz. CB goes to 26.96 megahertz to 27.41 megahertz. 
and so on and so forth. So, so FM radio is going to be that's megahertz, right? Yeah, so it's going to be around range. around 100 megahertz. Yes, yeah, exactly. Area. So, uh, yeah, because power 99, that would be at 99 megahertz, right? Mm-hmm. 99.1, I think originally maybe starts in uh, the high 80s, I think. Yeah, and, and goes up to like uh, 107, I think, somewhere yeah. around there. So, uh, different countries have allocated their broad pe- broadcast spectrum in different ways. So, not everyone follows those exact same rules. There's usually some overlap. Uh, now, when you know something about the wavelength of the radio frequency, that tells you what you need, how you need to build your antenna, right? Because the length of your antenna is dependent upon the frequencies you're looking for. You want your antenna to be the right length uh, to resonate properly with the radio frequencies you're searching for. There's no such thing as really a perfect universal antenna that can mm-hmm. equally pick up all frequencies across the radio range. Now, uh, you might wonder, how can you have like a pocket AM radio? Because if AM radio is broadcasting in the medium frequency and has pretty long radio waves and you need to have an antenna that is the right length to pick that up, typically we're talking about half the length of the wavelength of the radio uh, frequency you're looking at, right? Uh-huh. So if you're talking about like a, a wavelength that's 100 meters long, then you're looking at a radio antenna that's between 40 and 50 meters. <laughs> How the heck do you fit that on? Like, that, that seems ridiculous. Well, the antenna for AM radios are typically wire that are, uh, and that wire is wrapped around a core because it doesn't matter if the wire's straight or not straight or whatever. You can You can coil it. Huh. Uh, inside a device and have it completely housed within the radio. So if you were to open up an AM radio, chances are you'd find a wire where one end is not attached to anything and it's just wrapped around, 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 around a core of some sort. That's the antenna. It's it's not like it's providing any sort of electrical uh, stimulation apart from conver- you know pulling in radio waves and, and having that uh, induce an electric current. So uh, that's why AM radios don't necessarily have a visible, incredibly long antenna. Um, And this is important when it comes to things like transmitter hunting. Yeah, because if you look at uh, transmitter hunting sites, and we'll get into the specifics of the sport here in a minute, you see a lot of jargon that uh, obviously has to do with stuff about like antenna length and frequencies and stuff like that. One of the common things you'll see is like the idea of a two-meter hunt. Yes. Uh, the the, the uh, two-meter arena is often considered the sweet spot for, for transmitter hunting. Now, what does that mean when a ham radio enthusiast talks about two meters? They're talking specifically about the size of the antenna that they are using. The two, two mm. meters is a pretty decent-sized antenna, right? Like, yeah. you know, a meter is – like w- here in the United States, we don't necessarily think in terms of meters that frequently because we're not on the metric system. But, uh, yeah, that's the reason is because the frequencies that are being used by ham radio enthusiasts are falling in the VHF radio frequency band, that very high frequency. Now, that frequency band goes from 30 megahertz to 300 megahertz. And the radio wavelengths go from 10 meters down to 1 meter. And we're using descending sizes because, remember, as frequency increases, the wavelength decreases, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're hunting for a, uh, a radio signal that's somewhere in that uh, that four to five meter range, 
you need a two meter antenna in order to to pick them up effectively to to have it be particularly sensitive to those uh, transmissions. Now, the specific range within VHF designated for amateur radio use is in the United States 144 megahertz to 148 megahertz. It's a little different in Europe, where it's 144 to 146. Oh, so they're stingy with it over there. Yeah, not not quite as wide a range. Give us our two megahertz, come on. Yeah, and well, to be fair though, it's not the only band for amateur radio. Amateur radio actually has bands in several different frequency ranges. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just for the VHF frequency range. It's this specific uh, uh, range of uh, frequencies: okay. 144 to 148 in the U.S., 144 to 146 in Europe. Um, but you can also find amateur radio frequency bands in low, medium, and high frequency, as well as all the way up to like terribly fast, terribly high frequency. You can find them up there, too. Uh, now, because of the wavelengths involved, that two-meter antenna is best able to pick up those transmissions because it resonates more readily with transmissions in that frequency. Right? Yeah. Like, it can pick up stuff outside of it, but not as effectively as the stuff it was designed for. It's That's the sweet spot. So uh, you can build your own if you wanted to. There are a lot of different uh, resources, both online and in libraries, that will teach you how to build an antenna. Mm-hmm. I watched one that actually was so cool that I think I might do it as a project here at How Stuff Works and do a video about it. What kind of antenna was uh, it? It would be it would be a quad antenna okay. that I'll talk about a little bit a little bit later. Mostly because I know I've been thinking about trying to build a Yaki antenna. Yeah, yeah. well, that would be or great to have both of, the, of them. As some of the hams pronounce it, Yagi. Yagi. Yeah. Uh, I think that that project would be really kind of fun. And uh, also, I like the way a uh, quad antenna can look. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. Okay. Anyway. Well I, well, I challenge you to an antenna build-off. That sounds great. Yeah, let's do it. Let's totally do it. To be fair, it's way easier to do it now than it was in the old hobbyist days where you had to do all the calculations by hand. Now there are so many online tools that will allow you to just plug in what you're what you're attempting yeah. to do and it'll tell you exactly how long each element I've been to, be. to exactly one of these calculators I look, found one online that says like okay here's the frequency I want to look for yeah. here's the decibel gain I want yeah um, and then it'll tell you the relative size of your of your elements for your uh, antenna yeah so if you are a transmitter hunter chances are you have multiple antenna or as I put a veritable array of antennas oh perhaps a literal array of antennas, depending upon what you're, you're, depending upon how much money and time you have to put into the hobby. Uh, but then we also have another element that that you uh, put in our notes. Yeah. Another question. Yeah. So sometimes you'll hear uh, or you'll read about people in the transmitter hunting community talking about harmonics. Yeah. You know, so they'll say maybe, oh, I got very close to the transmitter and I was uh, I was overwhelmed. What could I do? You know, I, I suddenly I, I couldn't isolate the direction of the signal anymore. And somebody else might say, well, try looking for the third harmonic. I love that because it sounds very uh, cryptic and in the know. Yeah, a little, uh, what, almost what a little. What does it mean? Like, sounds a little Star Trek-esque in a way. Yeah. So harmonics are integer multiples of the fundamental frequency, which Mm -hmm. is a fancy way of saying you start with whatever frequency you're looking for. Because generally speaking, transmitter hunters, there's a specific frequency that they know they are searching for. Otherwise, it would be needle in a haystack, right? Plus, they're limited anyway by the range that uh, amateur operators are allowed to use. So you start with whatever the target frequency is. 
and you multiply it by integers in order to get the harmonics. So the first harmonic is the fundamental frequency because you just multiply by one. Right. Got it? So third harmonic, you multiply by three. Fifth harmonic, you multiply by five. Both of those are particularly useful in transmitter hunting. So the typical uh, frequency you'd be hunting for is 146.565 megahertz. Now, if you want to find the third harmonic, you multiply that number by three. That gives you 439.695 megahertz. The fifth harmonic, you multiply by five, that gets you 732.825 megahertz. Now, each of those harmonics has a weaker signal than the fundamental frequency. But it would be related to the fundamental frequency. It is related to it, but it is a weaker signal. Yeah. Now, if you're, when you get close to one of these transmitters, chances are the signal strength is such that you are, it's hard for you to get any useful information. Yeah. Right? Like so it's, you might, if you have a directional antenna, which we'll talk about in a minute, yeah. you might be sweeping it all around and you're just maxing out your receiver no matter what direction you point it in. Right. Because the signal, it's not like you're right on top of the transmitter, but you're close enough where the directionality is no longer useful. It's kind of like you can hear someone yelling off in the distance and you're blindfolded, so you know generally what direction they're in. But as you get really close and they're yelling, and it's an echoey area, you can't really tell where the noise is coming from necessarily. It's kind of like that as an analogy. Uh, so if you're able to switch to one of these harmonics, because it's a weaker signal, you can get a little more precise with that directionality. You can use If you have an antenna that can switch to one of these signals, or you have an antenna specifically made to detect those harmonics, then you are able to switch to a weaker signal, which is not going to overwhelm your antenna so quickly, and you can hone in on the the direction a little more precisely than you would if you had to rely on your your uh, chief two meter antenna, right? Yeah. So that's why harmonics are important, uh, and we we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the Yagi antennas in a second. Uh, Yagi antenna, more formally, is the Yagi Uda. Antenna, <laughs> which sounds like it should be a Star Wars character, right? Yagi yeah. Uda. Yeah. Oh, you seek Yagi Uda. Uh, <sighs> it's a directional antenna that looks kind of like a, one of those old TV antennas, like the old aerials that you would see on top of houses, typically in the movie like uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> yeah, it has uh, it has one long boom in the middle, is what it's yeah. referred to, a central pole on which are mounted parallel elements. Yeah. And these elements are what does the shaping and receiving of the signal. Or yeah. transmitting. You can have a transmitter or a receiver. Sure, yeah. Antenna, they're meant to be both transmitters and receivers, right? Uh, typically, the antenna that, that I use and most people use, I would imagine, are simply used as receivers. Uh-huh. Uh, except when you get into things like phones and stuff. Obviously, any any phone-type device has both a transmitter and a receiver. Otherwise, it's just a radio. Uh, so <laughs> not terribly useful if you want to make a call. Not but, that anyone yeah. does anymore. But the, I digress. Well, anyway, we'll talk about the specifics in a minute. But the the uh, the point of these parallel elements on a Yagi antenna is to create this directional effect. Yes. Where uh, a signal is uh, detected if you are pointing right at it, but it is killed if you are pointing perpendicular to it. Right, right. So the idea being that if you turn to your right and the signal suddenly drops out, you know that the the direction to the right is not the way to go. You start turning to the left and you find where the signal drops out, you can eliminate that. It narrows down the range uh, where the transmission can actually 
uh, originate. And since transmitter hunting is all about finding that transmitter, that's important. And we're going to talk more about transmitter hunting and really dive into the, the hobby and the sport in just a moment. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed, and I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber-meets-the-road-into-the-wild, true-blue-real-life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan. You can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry. The Nissan Rogue has your back. Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go. No need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. All right, we're back. And Joe, I want you to tell me more about this this sport of transmitter hunting, a sport I did not know existed until you brought this topic to my attention. Uh, yeah, so I 
at some point want to try this. I've never done it myself, mm-hmm. uh, but I've been reading about it over the past couple months, and I've watched a few videos of people trying it out on YouTube, um, and it looks very interesting. So the, the sport is known as transmitter hunting, also tea hunting or fox hunting, mm-hmm. uh, and a standard game goes like this. You've got one participant who is the hider. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the dungeon master of the fox hunt. Gotcha. And the hider puts together a radio transmitter appropriate for the scale of the hunt. All right. Uh, So you might use a small handheld transmitter stashed inside an old ammunition can for a small scale hunt uh, on foot or in a, you know, small several mile mile area Mm -hmm. uh, with cars. And in this scenario, you would set the transmitter to repeat a signal at steady intervals. So it might be like beepity beep beep beep, beepity beep beep beep. Gotcha. And then you'd hide it somewhere, maybe in a public park or another a, a reasonably small search area. Mm-hmm. For large-scale hunts, you could actually build a powerful antenna capable of transmitting miles and miles across state lines. There are people who do this in, you know, these long all-day car hunts where they're going uh, a really long way to try to find a transmitter somewhere out in the desert or something. It looks yeah. like a lot of fun, and you use it. Uh, you, you hunt it using cars or maybe fan boats. Wow! You know, so you can. You can do this in the Everglades. Uh, I I would. That's just the way I would like to do it. Yeah, I just. Uh, I all I can imagine is now we we talked earlier about possibly making a movie. This this movie would now have to star Burt Reynolds. Uh huh. But if you are hiding a transmitter, there are some social and safety concerns you probably want to keep in mind. Makes sense. Imagine, for example, you yeah. are out at a public park with your children, <laughs> and you see some creepy loner with an antenna attached to their van. Uh, pull up beside the park and then put a bunch of electronics inside an ammunition can and hide it in the bushes next to the sandbox. I would say that would raise at least one, possibly two red flags. Right. Yeah. So you, you probably, first of all, need to be careful where you hide your transmitters. You need to, uh, if it's, you know, in a place where you would need permission, get permission first. Sure. In any case... If you're doing transmitter hunting, I, I've heard that it is a good idea to notify the police ahead of time that there are going to be people running around with antennas and that you're going to be hiding a thing and let let the police know where you're hiding it so that it doesn't get mistaken for a bomb or some other nefarious device. Yeah. Um, it also looks like it's a good idea to put some writing on um, the device, warning <laughs> people that it's not dangerous. Right. Uh, Although... Honestly, <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. Yeah, I mean, like, if I were, if I were the type to make a device that was intended to be harmful to people, uh-huh. I can't imagine that I would have the ethics to avoid writing. This totally will not harm you. <laughs> it's like I'm pretty sure a box of hot pockets says this is not dangerous on it. Yeah, I mean, it all. But why but, trust them? But definitely go to that extra effort. Yeah. We we were talking offline about this before we came in here to record the episode, and the world is a very different place than what it was when uh, transmitter hunting was really uh, one of those hobbies that that uh, that people could essentially go anywhere and, and play. No one really noticed because they didn't even it was just be beneath mm-hmm. the the public consciousness. Uh, Joe found a book and lent it to me that I got to read. And in it, they describe a situation where one person who was hiding a transmitter 
didn't have the time to actually do it himself, and so entrusted the transmitter to two other people who said, oh yeah, we'll totally hide it where you told us, and instead they went and hid it under an overpass. And I thought, those days are over. <laughs> you would get into so much trouble now, because you remember... Hilarious the... prank back then now freaks people out. Yeah, you remember the Moonanites. Yeah. Uh, those are characters from Aqua Teen Hunger Force, where they... they the uh, Cartoon Network had done this promotional stunt where they put uh, very simple LED displays of the Moonanites over certain bridges, and it freaked people out. They thought perhaps it was like a weird warning about an explosive that had been attached to said overpasses. Turned out, of course, no, it was just a promotional stunt, but no one knew that at the time. And in the world that we live in today... It's probably better to take those extra precautions and to uh, to let uh, whatever authority oversees the area that you are planting the transmitter in to know about it ahead of time, get approval, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and take these extra steps to make sure you don't in- incite a panic. Uh, by the way, you, you mentioned this book, and I just wanted to throw out the name of it sure. because I was looking at this too. It's a book I ordered called Transmitter Hunting, Radio Direction Finding Simplified. It's from the late 1980s and it is a radio hobbyist manual yeah. uh, by uh, uh, Joseph Mowell and Thomas N. Curley. An exhaustive and- hobbyist manual. Well, they've got a lot of projects and yeah. stuff back then for building different antenna types, but uh, also just sort of an overview of what the sport looks like, you know, when people practice it. Sure. Uh, so when when you get into a transmitter hunt, you've yeah. got the, the transmitter hidden somewhere. Yeah. And you've got some boundaries established. Yep. And then the players are set loose. They're like the dogs on a fox hunt, which yeah. I assume is where the name comes from and not some other counterintuitive naming scheme. Uh, but they know what to listen for. So they've got the, the frequency established. They know what the, the signal is. But they've got to somehow find the physical location of the transmitter. Yep. Uh, now, once you think you have isolated the direction from which a signal is coming, and in just a second we'll talk about ways you could do that, some different equipment you could have. Uh, but typically you'll have some kind of antenna or device that gets you a bearing. Yeah. So you've got a line to where you think the the signal is coming from. And then from there, there are a couple of primary ways you can hunt. One is the simple way, which is just chasing the bearing. Right. So Even this is not as simple as it sounds. The but idea is that you found you you found a direction yeah. and you're like, okay, well, the, the transmission is coming from the southeast. Yes. So let's just get in the car and travel as close to southeast as we possibly can for a while, and then we'll jump out and check again. Yeah. So you just follow it and then keep checking the signal. The other way would be what's known as triangulation. Yeah. And so there, imagine you would need a map for this. Yes, an actual and, physical paper map would yeah, probably that work That you can best. make marks on. Yep. that has accurate distances and measurements. Uh, so you get a bearing from one known location. You know where you are. You mark your location on the map, and then you get a bearing. So you draw a line on the map saying, yep. okay, it's coming from this direction. Then you go to another place on the map, mm-hmm. and you mark your location there, and you get a bearing again. You say, okay, it's coming from this direction. Draw another line. Then you go to a third place, get a bearing again, and maybe do that another time. So if everything is working correctly, those three or more lines should begin to intersect right. with the location of the transmitter. There should be a convergence around the general area. Now, it may be because of geography and buildings and such that the signal you're picking up is a reflected signal and not not really indicative of the actual source of transmission, right? Mm-hmm. Like 
let's say that the source of the transmission is off by a few degrees from where you get your bearing because of this reflection. Well, as you do your triangulation, you might notice that, that the, this intersection is a little weird. Like not all the, it's not like all the lines are converging on a single point. It might be that they create a trapezoid of possibility. Uh-huh. And then the idea is that, all right, well, now we're going to need to get further, closer to that trapezoid because we know that the transmitter is most likely within that area somewhere. Right. But we have to narrow it down from there. Either way you go, if you're just homing in on a bearing or if you're trying to do triangulation, it's not as easy as it sounds. Yeah. Uh, because, as you alluded to, the propagation of radio, radio waves can be affected by all kinds of stuff. Many yep. variables like terrain, uh, presence of water, reflective obstacles like fences, power lines, or even concrete buildings. So a hill can block your line of sight to a transmitter. Yeah, so the, if the you, hill a hill can be in the way. You might jump out of your vehicle and you're trying to pick up the signal and you can't pick up anything. Yeah. Or uh, or whatever or it's you pick very up is weak, yeah. so weak that you can't really get a reading on where it's coming from and and instead of freaking out it just may mean that you have to travel a little bit further to get the hill out of the way. Also apparently sometimes water and shorelines can change the apparent direction from which a signal is coming. So if the signal's coming at you over water and then there's a shoreline it can sort of shear the direction of mm. it. Um, there are, uh, some, uh, th- obviously things like metal fences, power lines, buildings can create these reflective surfaces that'll bounce the signal around. Uh, some environments like cities are absolutely jammed with radio reflective objects. Yeah. So if you're in a city, uh, the, the very buildings around you are just like bouncing the signal back and forth like a pinball. And this can create what's known as a multipath environment. Mm. Uh, so multipath is going to be a, one of the biggest problems to overcome if you are looking for a hidden transmitter, especially in a city or other, you know, area crowded with reflective obstacles. Mm-hmm. And it just means that you're getting the signal you're tracking from multiple different directions. And you've got to have some experience and knowledge of of how exactly to work around problems like that. Yeah. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed, and I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. 
I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber-meets-the-road, into-the-wild, true-blue-real-life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan. You can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry, the Nissan Rogue has your back. Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go. No need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. So a good hunter needs to have experience and skill, but they also are going to need, uh, not necessarily need, but it really helps to have some specialized equipment, yeah, including special antennas and receivers. Now, uh, as the the authors of that book, Joe mentioned, point out multiple times, an experienced and skillful hunter can use seemingly inferior equipment and still produce a better result than someone who has lots of money and has dropped it on a bunch of high-tech equipment but has little to no experience actually using said equipment. So there is a lot of art to this. It's not just science. There's a bit where, you know, knowing, kind of having an intuition about how radio waves work and the geography that you are in and kind of getting an idea of how that could be affecting what you are are receiving uh, might be way more helpful than just a high-tech antenna that is that costs a lot of money. Yeah. Um, I I have read, well, the, the authors of this book say, and it does seem true to me based also on other things I've read, that one of the most important pieces of equipment in a transmitter hunt is a map. Yes. It's having a good map, especially like a topographical map that includes surface features and yeah. buildings they, and they stuff They also like say that, that you know, it can come, become incredibly challenging because the the game doesn't necessarily confine itself to the area of any given map. So yeah. you might need multiple maps. And uh, that also becomes a bit of a challenge because unless the maps are both produced at the same scale, you can't just overlay them, you know, and, and tape them together or whatever. It may be that it requires a lot of uh, math on your part. Yeah. So that's a strike against it for me. Well, uh, let's do a real brief overview of some of the main types of antennas you might encounter Absolutely. on a transmitter yeah. hunt. So we've, we've mentioned by name several times the Yagi or Yagi antenna. Yep. Um, so this is a directional antenna. There are a couple mm -hmm. major kinds of directional antennas, but a directional antenna, as we've said, 
it is designed to isolate the directionality of the signal. Yes. So if you point it at a right angle to the signal, you shouldn't be getting much of anything. Right. If you point it in the opposite direction, most of them should say, you know, nothing. Right. Uh, or not much. But if you finally find the direction of the signal, the strength of the signal that comes through the antenna to your receiver should spike. Yes. And so a Yagi antenna is made of a series of metal elements arranged in parallel. So if you're trying to picture this, think of one long pole. It could be like a broom handle or PVC pipe or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then there are metal rods or wires of varying lengths. And the lengths are very specific and very important. Yes, and they are determined uh, by the frequency of the signal that you're looking for. Uh, the re- relationship of the lengths of the various elements uh, are very important. Depending upon what the what their job is. Yeah. Uh, so there is the most important elements. The main one is the driven element. And yep. this is the electrically active part. Uh, this is the one that connects to the wires that go down to your receiver, yeah. your handheld radio receiver. Yeah, this is this is what is resonating with that frequency. But then there are these other elements that are known as the parasitic elements, yeah. uh, and they're not connected to the receiver, but they're there to manipulate the types of waves that the driven element receives. Yeah, this is this is what gives these directional antenna their directionality. Yeah, so the the there's a reflector element that goes behind. Behind the driven element. So if you're pointing at the signal source, the reflector element should be closer to you and behind the driven one. Right. Uh, and it reflects the signal back and focuses the reception field to the direction that the antenna is pointing. And then there may be multiple director elements, which are more elements in parallel ahead of the uh, the active element to help manipulate the shape of the waveforms and enforce directionality. Yeah. So if you're looking at these different elements, um, first of all, if you're trying to envision this in your head, imagine that broomstick. All right. The broomstick you are you are holding out from yourself. Mm -hmm. These elements are perpendicular to the broomstick, but parallel with each other. Right. right? So at at the closest end to you, you you have this uh, reflector element. It's going to be the largest Mm -hmm. of those elements. Then you have the, but uh, just slightly, not just by slightly, a lot. Yeah, yeah, not by a whole lot, it, and it sort of is acting kind of like the dish in a uh, sil- satellite dish antenna, yeah. sort of in that same style. So it's at, uh, it's slightly larger than the driven element. That's the one that you were, you know, is actually hooked up to the sensor so that it's it's pulling in the the signal. And then at the far end, you have the director elements. These are the shortest of the elements, and again, it's not dramatically shorter it's mm-hmm. just a little shorter all of the size uh sizes of these depend upon the frequency you're searching for i mean if you want to build an uh, a yagi for a very specific purpose you would look at the frequency you're looking for and there's a mathematical formula you use that gives you the ideal uh Driven element size, reflector element size, and director element sizes, yeah. and uh, you just—it's—it's it's essentially you take a number and you divide. Is it, it by also number. also their distance from each other? Is that... that is also yeah. The spacing yeah. is also important. The spacing yeah. between these elements is very important. You can't just put them anywhere along that broomstick. You mm-hmm. need to have them spaced out properly. So both of those things are very important in order for you to get an antenna that is going to resonate properly with the frequency you want, and therefore. Uh, help you narrow down its uh, direction. Yeah. 
so then there's another very popular form of directional antenna that is that accomplishes the same goal but with a different type of construction, and that's the quad antenna. Yeah, they uh, they're also typically used to detect frequencies in the high frequency or very high frequency ranges. Uh, so they consist of the driven element just a, and the the direction and uh, reflective element uh, or directive elements, I should say. Uh, just like the Yagi is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're arranged in a slightly different way. Uh, they they use loops of wire. Uh, these loops are not necessarily in a circle. They just need to be closed off. Uh, so the, the example I saw was uh, a cubicle two-element quad antenna, and actually it was technically a three-element, but because you've got the driven, you've got the reflector, and uh, the, you know, the, the direction one, uh, the directive element. Uh, I liked it because it kind of looks like a TIE fighter. Oh, yeah. They look like TIE fighter wings, the loops do. Yeah. Now, that's just the cubicle version. There are other variants of the quad antenna. Uh, These are are a slightly different look. I mean, a very different look from the Yagis. Uh, They have a very sensitive directionality to them, and they also tend to have a slightly higher gain Mm -hmm. than Yagis by about two decibels. Uh, decibel is a sliding scale, by the way. It's a logarithmic scale. Right. Not a, so two decibels on its own means nothing. You need to have another point of reference for you to understand what two decibels is. Right, but is. if you've got a weak signal and you need to amplify it, that that could be important. Yeah. So, so quad antennas are uh, a popular way of trying to track down um, a signal, especially if you need a little bit more sensitivity than you would with a Yagi. Uh, so both of these are popular. They, they also come in different sizes. I mean, obviously, it depends upon what frequencies you're looking for. Uh, the quad antenna is interesting because the length of the loop is dependent upon the frequency you're, you're searching for. So right. the squares in the TIE fighter, like the wing size of the TIE fighter, are dependent upon that frequency. And the reflector is actually going to be slightly larger than the other ones. Uh, so, uh, I, wa- I was watching a video on how to make this and that's when I said, I kind of want to make one of these. Um, and you know, the mobile ones are slightly smaller than the ones you might mount at your house. If you happen to live out in the country and you can have a 40 meter tall <laughs> antenna in your uh-huh. backyard. Um, but they are, uh, it, and it, it definitely doesn't look like something that's easy to carry around. I mean, they're not, they're not small, uh, a lot of people who are serious about this hobby, they have uh, they have mounts on attached their, to their cars. Yeah, yeah. So you'll see vans with these things attached, or jeeps, that kind of thing, yeah. with these things attached to the vehicles themselves, uh, mounted on them, and they're not meant to be taken off. So uh, that's another popular one. Another one is the Doppler direction finder. Now, this is going to be somewhat different than the, the directional antennas. It still ultimately establishes directionality, yeah. but it makes use of the eponymous Doppler effect. Yes, named after Christian Doppler, who was known for running down the hallways going, eee! <laughs> I got Dylan laughing on that one. <laughs> it was just oh, so man. absurd that Dylan started laughing. <laughs> it's rare that I get our producer to laugh at something, but that was one of them. Uh, no, so Doppler was a 19th century uh, physicist, apparently in my world, a slightly absurd one. And he came up with the equations to describe the apparent frequency shifts we perceive uh, that happen from the relative motion of a sender of a, tr- of a signal and the receiver of a signal or a wave. 
Now you've heard me talk about this before. You probably experienced it. The easiest way to to give uh, an example is with sound waves. So if you've ever noticed a siren on an approaching emergency vehicle being much higher pitched than it is when it passes you. So it's coming at you. It's a higher pitched noise. It passes you. It's a lower pitched noise. Mm -hmm. Or if you happen to be next to it and the two of you are either motionless or you're moving at the same speed in the same direction, it may sound like a pitch that's somewhere in between. That's because of the Doppler shift. When the vehicle is moving towards you, it is effectively compressing those sound waves. So it's increasing the frequency, which we perceive as an increase, in, uh, making the pitch go up. When it's moving away from you, it's elongating those sound waves. And so our perception of that is that it's a lower frequency and the pitch goes down. Same sort of thing is true with electromagnetic radiation. Actually, it's also true with light. I mean, which technically is part of electromagnetic radiation, but it's not radio waves. Mm -hmm. same, same thing is true for all of these things. Yeah. So Red if you build, shift, blue shift. Exactly. Yeah. It's how we measure how fast we're moving away from or toward other galaxies, for example. Yeah. Uh, so using a, a very special type of antenna, you can take advantage of this this uh, property of physics. So Doppler direction finders typically have several rotating elements, and it's usually between three and eight vertically oriented antenna. The antenna pick up these signals that uh, uh, then are sent to a processor that determines where is the, the signal really coming from, the incoming signal, where is that coming from? And typically there's like a circular display. Um, it's just a, a circle of LED lights is the simplest version. Mm -hmm. And whatever direction uh, the signal appears to be coming from, with respect to the front of your vehicle, a light will pop up. So it's not telling you that, oh, uh, you need to go northeast. It'll tell you, oh, the signal's coming this many degrees to your right or this many degrees to your left, or it's actually coming from behind you, that kind of thing. So if you were driving due west and the signal at the 3 o'clock position or the light at the 3 o'clock position on your little circular display lights up, that would tell you that the signal's actually coming from the north. Yeah. Because to your right would be true north if you're going due west. Yeah. So you look at this signal, uh, the circle of lights, and whichever one is lit up, that's telling you, all right, well, we need to start changing our bearing toward that direction if we want to head in the direction of the transmission itself. Now, another type of uh, direction finder that you could use would be something that's known as uh, time difference of arrival antennas. Yeah. And this is another interesting thing. So it it has multiple receiving elements arranged in a pattern that pass the signal along to an electronic or computational core that compares the time delay between when the different elements received the same signal pattern. Now, this is crazy because, remember... These signals travel at the speed of light. Mm -hmm. So the differences are not detectable by humans, right? No, like there's not. no way that we humans would be able to tell the difference. And this is obviously easier if you have, uh, you know, something where there are multiple elements that are very far away from oh, each yeah. other. You Absolutely. Know, like like yeah. installations. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, so you can use time difference of arrival uh, since we know the speed of radio transmission is constant. We know mm -hmm. exactly what the speed is and we know the difference between the different elements. We can use the time delay between when they receive the signal to calculate the direction the signal is coming from. All right. So we've talked a lot about antennas and we've, we've mentioned receivers mm -hmm. quite a few times. 
Now, some people listening may be thinking that what you're doing is you got a pair of cans on your ears and you're listening really carefully for the beep, beep, beeps. But as it turns out, most of the time we're actually talking about a piece of equipment that indicates when it's receiving a signal and mm -hmm. giving you an idea of how strong that signal is. Let's talk about that for a second. Well, so it is going to be a receiver, a radio receiver, yeah, sure, like a sure. radio receiver you might be familiar with. But the most useful ones, obviously are going to be ones that are equipped with what's known as an S-meter. Mm -hmm. So you've got your antenna, and you've got a wire running from your antenna to the receiver, or wires running from the antenna to the receiver. Uh, and the receiver should be able to translate the signal into something you can make sense of. That might be sounds, or that might be a number. And, and the, in the case of an S-meter, it would be a number. It's a gauge that gives you a direct reading in a numerical value of the strength of the signal. So you're not just relying on you know subjective impressions from listening or some other method. Right. Uh, so you just find the direction where the number on the S-meter is the highest. This makes it a lot easier. And the signal strength is going to increase the closer you get to the transmitter. There's actually a very specific amount where you can sit there and say, like, all right, uh, I look to see when the the strength of the signal has doubled. That gives me an idea of how much closer I am to the transmitter. Uh, but using, you know, describing that requires lots of calculations and variables that I don't really have the time to go into right now. But just general rule of thumb, you know, you're, you look at that signal strength and that gives you an idea of how much closer you are to the transmitter without actually giving you any sort of units. Like it doesn't tell you, oh, it's a mile away or it's a thousand yards away or anything like that. It just tells you, oh, you have halved the distance between you and the transmitter. Whether that distance was 10 miles or one mile, who's to say? <laughs> it all depends upon the strength of the transmitter. So Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned when you get close, another important factor is going to be that most of your equipment is going to be attuned to weak signals. Yeah. You want to be able to detect a signal coming from a long distance. Right. But when uh, you get close to something that is... Uh, you know, you, you, is no longer a weak signal. It can overpower your equipment. Right? right. So you might suddenly, you've got your receiver and you've got your directional antenna and you can point it around in a circle and no matter what direction you point it in, your S meter is maxed out. Right. Because it's, you're just, you're just too close. It's, it's, it's like, you know, the water is completely around you. So detecting where the water is coming from is not easy to do. Right. So in this case, another piece of equipment that some people might have that would make a big difference would be known as an attenuator. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, in, in this case, an attenuator is an electronic element that can help you knock down the power of the signal, sort of the opposite of an amplifier. Yeah. Uh, and so that your equipment can tell which direction the signal is strongest and not just be maxing out at the top of the S meter. Right. This is also when the harmonics can come into play. Because exactly. Because if, if you can switch to the third harmonic harmonic or the fifth harmonic, then you're using weaker signals and it is less likely to overwhelm your equipment. Now, we've been talking about, you know, uh, antenna types and stuff like that. If, if you are a ham hobbyist and you want to build something or you want to spend some money and order something on the Internet, you, you can have these uh, these interesting setups that will give you a big advantage. But... People, some of these hams will talk about how you don't actually have to have something like that to do ham hunting. No, you ham can, hunting, transmitter yeah. hunting. <laughs> you are the ham. I've 
I've hunted ham before. Ham, was, the most dangerous game. It was, yeah. There was a, <laughs> there was this time where I spent with a bunch of my school friends on an island. We uh-huh. hunted ham. I don't like to talk about it though. Didn't turn out well. To serve ham. <laughs> uh, but one example of an interesting hack for crude tea hunting, if you don't have a directional antenna, but you just got a standard receiver, a handy talkie. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, is this thing that I read about called body blocking or body fading. Which does a, not, doesn't involve tackling somebody. No, but this is a really interesting idea. So let's say you've just got a little handy talkie. The antenna on this thing is omnidirectional, right? Yeah. Like a standard radio antenna. It directs, it, uh, it listens to all directions equally. Right. So if you're picking up a signal, you can't tell where it's coming yeah, it from. Help you just, you. you just know that you are within range of that signal. But here's what you can do. You take your regular omnidirectional antenna and press it tight up against your chest. Hug it to your body. Uh-huh. Now stand in place and rotate your body slowly. You should find actually that your reception will be fine in most directions, but that it will deteriorate when your back is facing one direction. And that's because you're suddenly that's the direction where you're putting your body directly between the transmitter and your receiver. So it's called body blocking because you are physically blocking the signal from getting to the radio effectively. Yeah, it's sort of the opposite of a directional antenna here because you instead of uh, saying uh, go to where the signal is strongest, mm-hmm. you find the direction where you are most able to block the antenna from receiving the signal and then you know that your butt is facing the transmitter. Yeah, as is always the case with me. Yeah, I, I like this idea. I like the idea of actually holding a competition that only uh, allows for that sort of uh, transmitter hunting. I think it could be really interesting. Uh-huh. It would also be really interesting to see it from afar, like be able to see at least three <laughs> or four. Like you're just seeing these people turn around very slowly, uh-huh. stop, and then immediately do a 180 and start running in that direction. Well, that would just all, be weird. All passionately embracing their little handy talkies. Yeah, and, I, and walking. Yeah, I. And again, like before, you brought this topic up to me. I had never. I'm not a ham radio operator. I've never gotten into amateur radio. I think it's fascinating, but mm-hmm. I've never. It's just not. That's never been a world that I've explored. So I didn't even know that this was a thing when you brought this up and learning about it. I'm like, you know, this is it does appeal to me because just as geocaching and letterboxing and those other forms of of kind of using technology to help hunt down something, mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of cool because that, that, you know, it does have that uh, relationship between technology and skill and that that desire for us to uncover secrets. I mean, I think that's something that's kind of innate in humans. Right. Yeah. This desire to. To the scavenger hunt is a very powerful thing because it's just it's fun to go through that experience and to uncover mysteries and stuff. And there are all sorts of different variations on these uh, these these competitions. Like one of them I would read about. Everyone starts in the same location. Mm-hmm. Like everybody starts there and everyone gets their initial bearing. And then it's up to them to figure out how to get to. Usually a sequence of transmitters with each transmitter sending out a slightly different variation of the signal. And typically they would do this uh, over the course of several minutes. So like on minute one, transmitter one is, is transmitting its signal. Then it shuts off and then transmitter two emits its signal oh, and then wow. it shuts off, which means that if there's like five transmitters that you have to find by the end of the day, 
and you have just missed, like you hop out of the car. You got to time your sweeps. Yeah. If you hop out of the car a minute too late, then you have to wait another five to 10 minutes before your transmitter comes back online. So you could, you could, uh, it, it's, you know, time management, it's, it's, uh, orienteering, it's all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, wow, what a neat idea. And I would love to, to participate in one of these, but I think we should do it as like a small group of us and shoot it on video and do it kind of like how some of our car stuff buddies did an interesting project not too long ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. That'd be kind of neat. Uh, of course, it's probably first tea hunt. It'll mostly end up with all of us yelling at each other, but that could be entertaining to watch. Mm-hmm. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show and bringing this topic up. It was a lot of fun to look into. Um, why don't you let people know where they can find your work here at How Stuff Works? Well, you can come and listen to the uh, podcast that I do, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, with my co-host Robert Lamb and Christian Sager. Mm-hmm. We are a science and weirdness podcast here yep. in the How Stuff Works family, uh, trying to pull back the curtain on the oddest corners of the universe. And so, uh, yeah, come check us out, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, we've got a website, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. And of course, I also write for video here at How Stuff Works. If you check out our channels like Brain Stuff, uh, you'll see some of my intolerable work there. <laughs> and uh, Jonathan, I hope to come back on the show sometime again soon. Absolutely, it's always fun to have someone else in here. Uh, it breaks up the the narrative uh, versions of the Tech Stuff podcast, which is nice for me. And I'm sure my listeners agree. Guys, if you have any suggestions, questions, anything like that, you want to send me a message, you can do so via email. The address to send it to is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle I use at both of those locations for this show is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like, da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to, like, that's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex-
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. 